0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y L V A N 29.com. How did 9 11 change the relationship between immigrants and America? I'm Arthi Shahani. I'm the creator and host of the podcast, Art of Power. I'm a memoirist who's written a book about her family's immigrant journey called Here We Are. This week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. My brother worked at the World Trade Center. He could have died on September 11th, 2001 he, we, survived the terrorist attacks. Still, every year on the anniversary of 9-11, I wonder if the tragedy is ours to mourn, or if it belongs to white America, a horrific event whose meaning is determined by skin color, not because Americans of different races experienced that horror differently, but because in its immediate aftermath, our government and newsrooms treated us so, so differently. My father was among those immigrants following the 9-11 attacks to be targeted by the newly created ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, for deportation. I spent nearly a decade of my life running circles around that agency to keep my dad in this country. I give this very personal preface to set up why today's guest fascinates me. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal embodies a post-9-11 journey that many of us quietly relate to, but that mass media has for many years erased. The journey of those Americans of color who responded to 9-11 not by enlisting in the military to fight abroad, But by protecting our communities against racist government attacks right here at home. September 11th was Jayapal's introduction to American politics. A first generation migrant from India, she built one of the most influential immigration advocacy organizations in the country. Originally called Hate Free Zone, it's been renamed One America after more than a decade of being on the outside. She was elected in 2016 and is already one of the most influential members of the House as chair of the very large Congressional Progressive Caucus. I am excited to have her on Vox Conversations this week for the 20th anniversary of September 11th. In our hour together, we talk about how 9-11 changed her relationship to America and in her view, reshaped the politics we all inhabit today. Welcome, Congresswoman.
1: It's so good to be with you, Arthi. Thank you for that beautiful sharing of your own personal story. I think it's so important to lay the context for what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, really, my motivation in seeking you out has to do with you being among the most high-profile public figures I frankly relate to in post-9-11 discussions. And Congresswoman, I want to start with, on the day of 9-11 itself, what was going through your head, if you can recall?
1: Oh, I recall it like it was yesterday. It's strange how that happens even 20 years ago. But I had just moved into a brand new house. I had just gotten divorced and everything was in boxes and literally the day before I had moved. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine on the East Coast very early in the morning saying, have you seen what's happened? Have you seen what's happened? I only owned a, I think it was a nine inch TV at the time. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> we were already in the 21st century, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: And uh, it was in a box Uh hidden away somewhere. So I went scrabbling through to try and find the box and turned it on because I don't think I could understand what she was telling me Mm. until I actually turned on the television and started watching the news. And immediately my thought was, what does this mean for people like me? And you'll understand when I say people like me, what that means, I do. But for people who may not understand, what do you mean by that? Well, I had just become a U.S. citizen, but I think I was still very clear that I was an immigrant, that I was brown, that I was a woman. I had flashed through my head all of the times in U.S. history where immigrants were targeted in very difficult times, going back to the internment and other mm-hmm. such times. And I felt like everything was going to change for somebody that looked like me. Mm-hmm. Even though I was a U.S. citizen, I had just become a U.S. citizen the Year before. And that was the overwhelming thought in my head. And I think, Artie, you know this. When something terrible happens, I want to know who's the perpetrator whose picture is going to be flashed on the screen, because there are such enormous ramifications when it is a person of color for all of those who are people of color. That does not happen to white people, I don't think, um, at all. Mm -hmm. But it happens to us, where we get
0: stereotyped. Like with the Oklahoma City bombing, there wasn't a presumption of white men being attackers. Exactly. And so that, viscerally, the day of you're watching the towers burn and then ultimately collapse, and you have the thought of, oh, there's going to be a reaction.
1: Immediately. Immediately, I had that thought. And I think actually the literal thing I thought was everything is going to change for people who look like me.
0: So it sounds like, you know, some people might hear the introduction I gave to this conversation in some ways as polarizing because 9 11 is supposed to be an event that brings Americans together. Sounds like you agree with my framing.
1: Yeah, I agree completely with it. And I think that this has been one of the great challenges is that there's a stereotyping that happens whenever people of color are involved in an attack, number one. Number two, there is an ignoring of the effects of that stereotyping Mm. on entire communities. And number three, there is an ignoring of the public policy impacts of responding quickly to things in a knee-jerk fashion without really thinking through everything that needs to go into that public policy, because it will last for decades, sometimes for generations. And I think all of those three things came to be true with 9-11. Everything I feared, I feel like, happened.
0: Representative Jayapal, I recall at that time, observing a handful of my friend's go into military service following the attack. That was their visceral response. You had a visceral response too, but it was not to enlist.
1: That's right. It was to enlist in a different way. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I enlisted in the journey for justice, for social justice, against racism, against xenophobia, And I don't think I realized it was going to be such a long journey. I thought maybe it was going to be an immediate response to what was happening around us. Mm. But within days, I ended up starting what became the largest immigrant advocacy organization. That was a 12-year journey of leading that and growing it. And then, of course, it led me into politics, and it led me to the tables where that kind of public policy is being discussed. I remember in the days after 9-11, and, you know, I had a whole presentation on the Patriot Act, Mm -hmm. which was passed within just a couple of weeks of 9-11 happening. Mm -hmm. It was taken off the shelf. It was dusted off. Most members of Congress didn't even read it. Famously not read, Bill. Famously not read Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. And we've been living with the consequences of that for a long time. It took me a while to get there, but I think I just realized that we need more of us in public office who understand these perspectives and can bring them to bear in the moment when they need to be brought to bear.
0: Congresswoman, before we get into your quite winding journey into public office, let's talk a little bit about your backstory. You are a very unique member of Congress in that you are one of only 14 naturalized citizens there. America used to have many more. We have gotten less diverse in that respect. You came to America at age 16 by yourself. You boarded a plane alone. Do you recall what you were imagining back then as a teenager?
1: I do because I found a treasure trove of letters that I wrote to my parents every week on aerograms that my mother happened to have kept. Oh, wow. And when I was writing my last book, I just happened to be home and she said, oh, by the way, I have all these letters. Do you want to read them? And so it really brought Home to me, what that was like. I was very excited about the opportunity. I knew what an opportunity it was. I knew what a sacrifice it was for my parents. I knew how much I had to deliver on their sacrifice. I mean, I really had to bring it home, you know, and make them proud. Mm -hmm. And I think I read a lot of the things I had forgotten about how hard it was to come to the United States. I think I kind of put those. In a vault in the back of my brain. And when people would ask me, it must have been tough to come to the US by yourself at 16. I would just kind of shrug it away and say, Oh, it was hard. But you know, it was such an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think reading those letters, I realized it, it was really hard it was really hard and i was trying to keep myself together for my parents and how so what did, what did you you know i was sick all the time i had a really hard time with the climate mm-hmm. i was working so hard to succeed i mean i think this is the ultimate immigrant story but mm-hmm. i couldn't disappoint my parents so there were long explanations of any grade that was less than an a oh, wow. <laughs> you know there was a lot of concern about money i mean i was only 16 years old but I didn't buy long underwear because we just didn't have the money and I had a certain amount of money that I had to live within. And even though I was freezing cold, I there were just all of these financial concerns that at the age of 16, I think it's hard to imagine somebody has to deal with that. And then there was just the the thing of being away from home, not wanting to burden your parents with how hard that was. But there were no vacations where I would go home other than once a year during the summer. Just being away, I think, was tough. Being alone was tough. Mm -hmm.
0: You went to Georgetown University as an undergrad at age 16. Is that right? That is. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Precocious. And (laughs) it's interesting because you just explained, you felt the need to explain away anything that was less than an A. At the same time, You decided you wanted to major in English, which drove your dad nuts?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. I was supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. You will understand that. I think a lot of people do that. That's the only reason my parents sent me away. And so Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I mean, I think I had my rebellious side too, right? I wanted to be the good daughter and and deliver. But at the same time, I was like, wait a second, I'm away from home. I need to do what I want to do. And so my sophomore year, I called my dad to tell him that I was going to be an English English literature major instead of an economics major. And I had to hold the phone away from my ear as he yelled at me and said, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. <laughs> um, and so that was a bit of a battle. And it was, frankly, it was a bit of a battle throughout my career, even just going into social justice work and not using my master's in business that you mentioned that was not what I was supposed to be doing is taking nonprofit jobs that don't pay very well and have mm-hmm. you living in villages along the borders of Laos and Cambodia or even in the United States and worrying about where your salary was going to come from. It's like
0: the antithesis of the sacrifice they were making. <laughs> That's right. You're like, we live in villages, so you don't have to. Exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. And of course, that is the beauty of being a parent. You you do all this stuff so your kids can can have a different life and make choices, and then they make choices that you might not make. So
0: Right. You did, in some ways, as a dutiful Asian-American daughter, go on to business school at Northwestern. You got your MBA. And after a stint selling heart defibrillators, <laughs> I love this fact about you. I like. I, I picture the tan suit and the flats going door to door.
1: And don't forget the blue Ford Aerostar van that I oh had to God. drive that had the defibrillators <laughs> and a cart in the back. Oh,
0: that's wonderful. <laughs> so uh, after doing that, as you just mentioned, in terms of Laos and Cambodia, you went into international development work. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of your life? Because it happened just before your activism in the U.S. and I think shaped a lot of your your worldview, your economic lens, your political lens.
1: Yes, and it's a part that often gets left out because people know about my immigrant rights background, but they don't know about the international development work. And for me, it was the bridge between business school and the private sector and social justice work. You know, it was a way for me to wake up every day and feel like I was doing something that mattered. And I loved working around the world. I mean, it was so much a part of my growing up. I worked with people from all over the world and was friends with people from all over the world. And so that ability to go to other countries and to get to know other cultures, I speak a number of languages, I pick up languages easily was just a fabulous experience for me. But it was also formative in terms of U.S. policy towards developing countries, Mm -hmm. U.S. aid policy, all the politics of that, good and bad. And also, of course, refugees, migration, poverty, so much that I now end up working on in Congress, but also that was a big part of how I dealt with the issue of immigration over the last 20 years, working on it domestically.
0: You are now a U.S. citizen. At one point, shortly after your child was born, you nearly lost your legal status in America. Can you recall what happened there?
1: Yeah, I wasn't a U.S. citizen yet. I was a green card holder at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had not gotten my U.S. citizenship, in part because you know, it's difficult to give up your Indian citizenship. And I sort of felt like, well, Mm -hmm. I had only just become eligible and it was just taking me a little bit longer. And in the meantime, I got a fellowship to go to India. And that's where I delivered Janak, my kiddo, who was born three months prematurely. Hmm. And I was living in a village at the time and I had to make it to Bombay where there was one of only two NICUs in the country at the time. Janik was born one pound 14 ounces. Oh my God. And was born at 26 and a half weeks. And so was in critical condition. And Janik goes by they, them pronouns, didn't know whether they were going to live or die. And I was by their bedside every single minute of every single day. And it so happened that I was on a green card, which meant that I had to come back to the United States once a year to keep the green card current,
0: touch ground.
1: Yes, touch ground. And so I would have returned to the United States in time to do that. But because Janik was born prematurely, I was not going to leave their bedside. Mm -hmm. And that meant that I was not going to make it back within a year. And so the USCIS at the time said to me, you have to come back in order to touch ground and keep your status current.
0: And you explained the situation with your child, the premature birth? I
1: did. I said, I'm not leaving their bedside. They could die at any minute they said, well, I'm really sorry, but you're going to lose your green card status. You're going to lose all of your status to come back to the United States. And this was literally just a few weeks after Janak was born, still in critical condition. And luckily, I was able to, through the institute that gave me my fellowship, they had connections with the U.S. ambassador at the time in India, and they reached out to the ambassador, and the ambassador reached out to somebody and somebody and somebody, and eventually I was given the ability to get my status restored, but not as a green card holder, just as a A legal resident. Yeah, temporary resident. And so because I was married to a U.S. citizen... I then started, once I got back to the United States, restarted the green card process. So I had to wait another three years. My entire, I think it was 15 years at the time, was wiped out in terms of my record. And I started from zero, but now I was married to a U.S. citizen. So three years later, I became eligible for citizenship and immediately got my citizenship because I was never going to be in a position where I could be separated from my child again. And so that sense of perhaps not being able to live in the same country as Janak. Janak also had all kinds of medical issues and needed to get back to the United States to have those medical issues taken care of. Mm. And that meant that had I not been able to resolve all of this, their father would have brought them back, but I would have had to stay in India. And that Mm. was untenable. And so part of how you regained
0: legal status, if not permanent residency, It was through advocacy. Correct. It was through working the political channels to get an answer that the agency itself wouldn't give you.
1: That's right. And I will tell you that I've often wondered what would happen if... Something like that had happened to me during the last four years or even before that as everything was tightening up, it became much, much more difficult to just have discretion of that kind. You know, and I think it would have been a very different situation under Donald Trump had I been in that same situation. I don't think there was probably anything that I could have done to get back in.
0: Congresswoman Jayapal used the word discretion. And I want to talk more about that, the notion of allowing a case-by-case consideration for human beings caught in incredibly difficult situations. How did experiencing this flawed system firsthand shape the Congresswoman's post-9-11 trajectory? That's coming up after the break. With greater understanding about who you are, where you come from, I want to understand your post nine eleven activism, starting with maybe one of your initial reactions to a sweeping policy change. In 2002, a little over a year after the attacks, Congress voted to create the Department of Homeland Security, and within it, a brand-new agency focused on executing mass deportations and detentions, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. This was historically unprecedented. The U.S. has never had a permanent deportation bureaucracy before. And I would note, it was completely bipartisan. In the Senate, seven Democrats voted no, all others voted yes, including, for example, now President Joseph Biden, now Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer. What was your
1: reaction to this sweeping change happening? I thought it was a bad idea. It was a bad idea on multiple fronts. Number one, we were creating this enormous agency that was going to have very little accountability within the different pieces that were now being dumped into the agency with enormous amounts of money behind it. So I was worried about accountability. Second, I thought that it was a very bad idea to put both services and enforcement into the same agency, you know. Of immigration. Immigration services used to be completely separate, and I thought it was very important to keep it separate because there is a lot of fear about the enforcement pieces, and combining those, I thought, would really make it difficult for many immigrants to access the services, and also, as we came to see later— that Donald Trump would then start using the services piece to actually target people on the enforcement side. Like people applying for legal status could then be sifted for deportation. Exactly. Right. So that was the second piece. And then the third piece was that the entire enforcement apparatus was created because of a failure of Congress to create a just, humane immigration system that the only reason that we needed that enforcement mechanism of that scale, that nature, that separation was because we didn't have a fair immigration system. If we had a fair immigration system where families would not have to wait 20 years to be able to get even a legal child into the country or where the people who are picking our fruits and vegetables every day or serving on our front lines are expected to do that and yet have no path to legal citizenship. If the people that are in these backlogs for work visas actually had a system where they could get a work visa quickly and bring their spouses in quickly, that we wouldn't need this giant enforcement bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Deportation and detention at the scale that we are doing them are only there because we don't have a functioning immigration system. And so rather than focusing on the enforcement side, I felt we needed to focus on making the immigration system fair, humane, and accessible for people. And that would prevent the enforcement piece.
0: So you think Homeland Security was a mistake to create. What does that mean specifically for you about what should happen to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, post-9-11 creation with, you know, very colorful history, that
1: agency. Well, I just don't think that ICE needs to exist in the form that it's in. I don't think it needs to be an agency. If we passed immigration reform, you wouldn't have a need for this level of deportation and detention. The highest levels of detention in the world, you know, the most number of people that we detain we call it detention, but it's really incarceration. It's imprisonment. And I mm-hmm. think that if we redid refugee and immigrant status, if we actually updated so many of the visa requirements that we have, we wouldn't need that. We would have a very small enforcement effort that could be in some other arena. And you wouldn't need to have an ICE that's focused on cruelty and caging children and tearing families apart. That just wouldn't need to exist. And so just to kind of
0: paraphrase it, because I partly follow you and I partly am kind of struggling here. The point is that this huge bureaucracy was created to weed out all of the quote unquote illegals, suspected terrorists, whatnot. But you're saying there wasn't a system in place to give people legal status before that. So you had a huge pool of people accumulating who could never even get on a line to be processed. And then you create an agency to punish them because there was no line to stand on.
1: Yeah, that's right. And also, I mean, I think you're getting at a slightly different point, which is also a a very true point around security. I mean, this was all being framed in the context of national security, which implied that we were going to go find terrorists by creating this enforcement mechanism. And of course, that's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And it's not the right approach to really achieving national security. So that's, I think, a very important point that you're making. I think the point I was making is that the entire enforcement system, regardless of national security, but just in terms of why it exists, it only exists because we don't have a functioning immigration system. It would all be moot if we actually had a way to legalize the 11 million, to bring people in for work or family if there was an actual line that people could stand in. Most people don't know this, but there is no line. When people say, get get in line, there is no line to get in. Mm -hmm. And so I was against it then and I'm against it now. And I actually think we should disband Department of Homeland Security, break it back up into its component parts Mm -hmm. and go back to thinking about first fixing the immigration system and then looking at what's actually necessary if the immigration system was fixed.
0: You just laid out one piece of policy you'd like to see moving forward. Does that become hard given how bipartisan its creation was? I mean, your colleagues, people sitting with you on the Congressional Progressive Caucus, they voted to create the thing that you're so decisively saying doesn't need to exist. One of the best funded agencies in the federal government.
1: Well, I think that over the last 20 years, we've been effective as advocates in making it clear why DHS as an agency is unaccountable. And I should say, you know, I've got more confidence in the current secretary of DHS than I've had in the entire time I've done this work. So I do think that Alejandro Mayorkas is somebody who knows the immigrant rights movement, has some good ideas, but even with somebody good in that position, I still believe that agency, DHS, is unaccountable, sprawling, inefficient, and cruel. And so... Mm -hmm. I don't think it needs to exist. It didn't exist until right after 9-11. And we can go back to breaking it up and having much smaller, much more accountable pieces and take away some of the cruelty that has been built into that system.
0: And so when you saw it being created in 2002 and being created by a landslide, roughly a year after the attacks, it likely sinks in for you. Oh, This is not a short-term response. There's a long-term response (laughs) happening here in America. Yeah. America's redefining, in some ways, what it means to be a migrant as perpetually suspect. And you decide to do what? I mean, because in part, you, you helped to build a response. You were a grassroots movement leader from the outside, attempting in this very volatile period of time to build power.
1: That's right. That was my focus is how do we build the movement? Because we were taking on the federal government, the government of the United States of America, where I had just become a citizen. This was not an easy task by any means. (laughs) And we were challenging the government on any number of things that would be classified as national security Pieces. And so it wasn't easy to find people to stand up with us. But as I always used to say, this is about due process, it's about justice, and people have to have due process in this fight. You can't just say that people are guilty before even having any kind of a process. And so even with the most controversial things, where we had an imam who was put into detention and slated for deportation, but there was no process to look at Mm. what the evidence was against that imam. And so when I was going around trying to get elected officials at the time, I was an activist, to stand up with me and they would say, well, you know, what if he's a terrorist? And I would Mm. say well, shouldn't we have a process to determine whether that's the case or not? There is no process here. And, you know, I was able to get a couple to come, but it was pretty few. But I think we did build up a real awareness about the effects on the communities. We did a number of hearings called Justice for All Hearings, and they were focused on people telling their stories, which is common today, Arthi, but back then, as you know, it was not particularly common. And so getting people to come and testify in a public hearing, getting elected officials to come to those public hearings and hear the impact on the communities, set up task forces with the communities at the table. And with these agencies that were violating civil liberties at the time. And then, of course, suing the government, which we did as well around deportations.
0: Tell me about a lawsuit. I love lawsuit stories. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we, um, we had several Somali men who we found out were being detained and slated for imminent deportation in Seattle. I got the call in the middle of the night. And we essentially ended up filing essentially habeas petitions to prevent their deportation. We were successful at doing that. And when that happened, we suddenly started getting calls from all over the country and Somalis in Minnesota, in Ohio, everywhere saying, we're going through the same thing. We suddenly realized, oh, my gosh, this isn't just an isolated thing. This is with people across the country. We then got attorneys to represent us pro bono in a class action lawsuit against the federal government, against John Ashcroft at the time, attorney general at the time, basically saying, you cannot deport somebody to a country where there is no functioning government. This was a small, Mm -hmm. tiny clause that we found in immigration law that nobody really knew existed. And that had never been used in this way. And so our lawyers felt that this was a legitimate channel for us to pursue. And so I think it was something like 25 or 3,500 people mm. that ended up being part of our class action lawsuit, all Somali Americans who were being deported and targeted because they were Somali. And
0: what was the basis?
1: You're saying because they were Somali, but,
0: but legally, what would have been the basis? Because it can't be because you're Somali. It has to be coded in something else.
1: Well, many of them had immigration minor immigration violations that were being used to then say they needed to be deported because they had had some violation of immigration status. Mm-hmm. Many of those violations were not actual violations, we found out. They were using anything they could And they were targeting Somali-Americans in particular. This had been a pattern since 9-11. We found Somali-Americans targeted also after 9-11 with grocery stores because they were Muslim, because they were immigrants, and because there were some links that had been made not actually true for the entire Somali-American community, but some links that had been made with so-called terrorist groups. And so we had to challenge all of that. Mm -hmm. So we were never able to prove that this was all because the government was saying that they were terrorists. But many of the immigration violations that they were being slated for deportation on were not accurate, were not valid. And so it was actually, uh, we believe, an actual program to target Somali Americans because they were being thrown into this, quote, terrorist category, regardless of what they had done, whether they had done anything.
0: Was it ever established after the fact that, yes, it was an actual program targeting Somalis?
1: The one around food stamps and the hawalas we did establish, and actually we sued on that as well, and we won on that. And that was just a page 32 of the newspaper. This was not an actual thing. The Somalis were not actually transmitting money to terrorist organizations abroad. Of course, when they were charged, it was on the front page of the newspaper. So on that one, we were able to counter that. On the deportations, it was too insidious to really be able to tell. But we did win the class action lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit, And then there was a lawsuit that went forward separately, same basis, in the Fifth Circuit that made its way to the Supreme Court, and we lost by one vote in the Supreme Court. But when the government started to try to deport people to Somalia – the Somali warlords refused to let the plane land in Somalia. I mean, this is a kind of a crazy story, you know, and I'm talking to the guy when he's on the tarmac in Kenya, basically not being allowed to go into Somalia. So they had to send him back to the United States, this one individual. And as it turned out, the rest of the Somalis were never deported. So because you found this clause saying you
0: have to have a country willing to receive them and And these people don't have that. That's right. What you just mentioned about the day that these Muslim immigrants are rounded up, it's front page news, perhaps as suspected terrorists or illegals or whatnot. And then the day they're exonerated, it's, you know, back of the paper. (laughs) Yeah. That observation, it's also an observation about how journalism worked at the time. When you were a grassroots activist presumably fighting to try to shape the narrative in some way, push back on the dominant narrative. Part of what you saw was a press corps that, I mean, we're taught to be skeptical, but a lot of us didn't bring that skepticism to the coverage, just kind of trusted the attorney generals or or whatnot line on it. When you look back at how the media coverage influenced the situation on the ground. Do you have any take on that, the
1: impact of the coverage? Yeah, I think that that happens all the time, right? I mean, it has changed a little bit as we get more diverse voices like yours into the media, people who are more aware of this impact. But it happens all the time where fear and patriotism together are the most effective way to suppress dissent. That happens with journalism. It happens with advocacy. It's very difficult in these moments of extreme crisis to actually get a story that is reflective of all of the pieces that are happening because something gets put out there and then it's taken, and particularly in a viral world, it's also difficult because the things that are most inflammatory are the ones that get the most attention. So the idea that there would be terrorists who are transferring money through grocery stores in Seattle, Washington, and the FBI comes in with you know guns loaded, surrounds, I mean, it's a great visual, it's a great story. It just happens to not be true. And so that has been the challenge all along is what is the real story here? And a lot of my advocacy work has been focused on trying to get the real story, Mm -hmm. trying to get people to tell their stories from a personal perspective, and then also doing the policy change. And that's true, even if we're talking about Iranian Americans who are stopped at the northern border, as happened a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes out is that it's not true that they're being stopped or that it's because they were suspicious. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until much later that we find out that there was a directive sent out targeting Iranian Americans at the northern border, and it had nothing to do with any of the things that were reported as news in the moment.
0: Pramila Jayapal spent so many years after 9-11 fighting with politicians, attorneys, and government agencies on problem after problem. So after all those years of struggle and wrangling, why did she decide to pursue a position inside the government? I'll ask her after one last short break. Representative Jayapal, more than a decade after 9-11, after spending years wrangling with politicians, wrangling with government agencies, organizing attorneys and protests to push back on this development and that development, you decide to run for Congress. You won in the same cycle that brought us Donald Trump. Why did you want to be on the inside?
1: I just felt it was so important to have organizers on the inside, that this was just another platform for organizing. And if we were going to be able to push back on these things that happen, often very quickly without thought, then we needed to be on the inside. We needed to be at the table and there just weren't enough of us. And so I decided to come inside and I feel like that has been a really important shift that has been happening in the activist world. I was on the early part of that shift to be an organizer on the inside and to really think about organizing from the inside. But now, of course, we have more people who are in that same vein. And it makes a big difference in actually putting forward not just policy, but perspective, Mm. perspective of immigrant communities, of communities of color, of communities that are unseen and unreported on too often.
0: Part of what also happens when you move to the inside is you get a much more intimate view on how your colleagues actually think, colleagues who have been there far longer than you. In what you've observed in the last handful of years within your party, among Democrats, Do you think there's a shared story about what happened in the post-9-11 era? Is your narrative the shared narrative?
1: No, it really isn't. And I was thinking about that as we come up on the 20th anniversary, and I was talking with some of my activist colleagues, Deepa Iyer, who started SALT, and a few others that started organizations around the same time, that there has never been a real reckoning with what happened for immigrant communities after 9-11. I think that is something that is still not understood. Nobody has really analyzed it. Every year when 9-11 comes around, there's some resolution that vilifies the people who committed those attacks, but does not do anything to really lift up the communities that have suffered, not just in the short term, but in the long term, or to lift up the consequences of those policy decisions 20 years ago that have had a negative impact on so many of us, so many communities across the United States.
0: Is it important to lift that up? I mean, like, I'm asking you something here that I think we grapple with as a country across issues and context, whether you and I are talking about immigration and post-9-11 America, whether we're talking about other sort of manifestations of racism in this country we struggle with, is it better to let the past go? Or do we have to vigilantly remember our post 9-11 history to fix it?
1: I think it's very important to remember and analyze what happened. I mean, even as we look at Afghanistan 20 years down, what brought us into that war? What were the things that we thought we were going to accomplish? And what was the American hubris that takes us into a war like that? I think that is true of 9-11 as well. We have to analyze how quickly we passed the Patriot Act, how quickly we reorganize DHS, because number one, we have to undo some of those things, still, very important. And number two, we want to make sure that that does not happen again. We always say never again. And yet, if you're going to do never again, then you have to understand what actually happened mm. so that we make sure that we don't do it again. Mm-hmm. So I think we can do it in a way that's less about making people wrong for what they did or how they voted and more about assessing with new eyes what we know today that should inform everything we do going forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Now You anticipated part of what I was wondering, which is the making people defensive because they were part of the problem.
1: Yes. And, you know, it's not a huge number of members of Congress who are still there who were there 20 years ago. I mean, it's not small, but there's some very prominent ones. There's some certainly very prominent ones and the leadership, certainly still there. But I think that that also makes it easier for us to look at what happened and say there were things that people who were there did not look at at the time. And frankly, some of my colleagues will say, I I think I made a mistake, you know. They may not say it publicly, Hmm. but they do say it privately. And some of them have even said, now I see I wouldn't have voted for X, Y, or Z. I'm
0: like, who said what to you privately? Go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I always think about how do we call people in and not just call people out. And so one of the ways to do that is to make sure you never share those names. But (laughs) I think it is really important that people have the opportunity to be wrong and then to be right. If you don't want people to change their views, then you can have them be wrong for the rest of their lives. But what we really want is for people to change their views and to change how we think about who matters in this country and to change the work that we do that affects people's lives, not just today, but 10, 20, 30 years into the future. Mm
0: America is described as a nation of immigrants. And I'll point out that's not an inherently good or bad thing, it's more a statement of fact. It happened through both voluntary as well as forced migration. How did the post 9-11 era shape or alter what it means to be an immigrant in this country?
1: I think it has dramatically affected how immigrants see belonging. Mm. And that to me is one of the hardest pieces to address. Is, you know, the sense of do I belong? Do I have a home here? Is there something that is going to happen that I have no control over that is going to affect? The rights and liberties that I enjoy as an American citizen, as a resident, as somebody who lives in these communities? And what is the notion of citizenship? And so there are good pieces around the conversations we've had since 9-11 on many of those topics. But that core sense of do I belong is the same sense that immigrants felt during the Japanese internment, during the Chinese Exclusion Act. Of course, Black Americans, through the history of our country. And I think that is something that we are going to have to grapple with as a country. Every time we turn on immigrants in these moments of crisis, our response is what is going to determine whether or not people like you and me can actually say, yes, immigrants belong here. We have a place Mm -hmm. here. We have helped build the country and we feel secure in that.
0: Pramila Jayapal, I want to thank you for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Arti.
0: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We are curious about what you think you want more of what we could do better and if you have ideas for future guests or topics send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com and hey if you did like this episode share it with your friends rate and review it come back monday for a brand new episode